certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. In 1990, while on the job for Telstra, Bradley Edwards attacked a social worker at Hollywood Hospital. We heard her testimony during the trial. In today's episode, Wendy Davis will tell you her story in her own words, the day she fought off the Claremont killer. Hello and welcome to Claremont in Conversation, The Verdict. Natalie Bongiolo and Tim Clark with you. And welcome to an incredibly brave woman. Wendy, thank you for being on the podcast. You're, you're welcome, Natalie. <laughs> Um, Hi, Tim. (laughs) Hi, Wendy. Tim, who you've had many, many conversations with over, um, you know, the past several months. Wendy, before we sort of take you back to recount that day, can you just tell us how you felt when those guilty verdicts were handed down? Um, I, to be quite honest, I was, I was not surprised. I was really... um, very um, relieved, particularly for um, the families of um, Kiara Glennon and Jane Rimmer, but I felt very um, sad for um, Sarah Spears' family that he couldn't um, find him guilty of that murder as well. But I do understand the reasoning. Um, But, yeah, overall I was... um, um, happy, I was happy that that had happened and very relieved that that process had come to an end. Mm. Did you get to know any of the other people involved during the process of the trial? No, my um, contact was with um, the WA police and um, and with the um, ODPP throughout the four years. And I have to say that um, um, that contact has been very, very supportive and um, very validating of my experience um, ever since the first phone call from the WA police at the end of 2016. Yeah, and we'll come to that because that must have been an absolutely shocking day for you. Can we just take you back to 1990? Can you tell us a little bit about your life at the time um, when you were working at Hollywood Hospital? Um, Yeah, I... um, had been in that position in the palliative care unit for about, um, I think, about 18 months. It was my second job at the hospital um, and I was really just establishing my career. I loved my work. I'd done um, a lot of extra study that the hospital had paid for and um, in um, in professional studies in palliative care and in relation counselling and... Um, and I was a very busy mum. I had three um, teenage daughters and um, my life was very full and very busy. And I saw myself um, um, staying at the hospital and um, and working in that job um, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. So in May 1990, it's the early afternoon. Can you talk us through what happened that day while you were just quietly going about your job? I was um, writing a report that um, um, I wanted to get finished really um, quickly. It was my youngest daughter's 11th birthday and um, I was concentrating on the report. And um, 
the little office that we worked in was um, like an annex on the back of the palliative care ward and it joined the palliative care ward and um, and an, a little anteroom with a toilet off the back and it was backed on by the PABX system. Um, there was a lot of um, upgrading going on in that hospital at the time so there were um, technicians and um, workmen around the place. So I'd noticed a few people, but hadn't really taken much notice. My job was quite busy. Anyway, I was writing this report and I was alone in the office and I heard a noise my desk. Um, I worked on a, um, my desk backed on to the, um, to the, um, the anteroom. It was, I shared the office with a, um, a, an occupational therapist and a physiotherapist, but they were often not in the office. They worked on other wards. And I, um, so my back was to the door and I um, I heard a bit of a noise and a voice said, um, oh, is it okay to use the toilet? And I twisted round on my chair um, slightly. I was still immersed in my work and I said, um, I, I sort of grunted. I saw that it, it was a, Telstra technician. I saw that it was, he must have had a uniform on. I don't know how I knew, but I knew that he was, um, he, he seemed like he was okay. And I just grunted and nodded and, um, and I pushed myself back to my desk and got on with my work. And I was aware of him going behind me and I was aware of the toilet flushing and I was aware that he came back behind me and back out to the ward door. And then he said, um, Oh, he said, I've dropped my pencil. He said, um, can I go back and get it? And I I I just I was I didn't even turn around this time and I but I I was I thought that's a bit of a weird thing to ask. And then I, it, it suddenly occurred to me that when the toilet flushed he'd and hadn't been in there long enough to use the toilet. And as I was thinking those things, a hand came um, around my face and had a cloth in it, clasped it over my face and an arm came round my neck, my shoulders and my neck and hoiked me back off my chair and lifted me um, back towards the toilet and I um, I thought I was going to I thought there was something on the cloth I was absolutely convinced that I was going to die I was convinced I was going to die and, and I was terrified after a few seconds, I realised that I had to breathe in. I and I, I breathed in. I could hardly move. I was still being pulled back towards the toilet, and I breathed in, and um, and I realised that there was nothing on the cloth. I couldn't smell anything. I thought, I'm, I'm, I've got a chance here, and I started to really struggle. And I was trying to get a, a foothold on the carpet. I. My, I was lifted right off the chair and and um, I somehow twisted around and the chair fell over. I could feel my um, my shoe came off um, and I was struggling and I was pressed up facing him and I was still being pulled back. We'd got to the door by the toilet door by this stage and I was fighting as much as I could. The only thing I could really move was my legs and I remember kicking out with my legs and making contact with him and the cloth had fallen away and because I was rubbed up against his his chest and the next minute everything just stopped. Everything just stopped. And I his arms came down and I fell back and I just 
um, looked at him and um, and he had this um, strange look in his eye and and then it's like he shook his head and he he just started saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he was moving like between back and forward and I was backing away at the same time and I um, he just kept saying over and over again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I um, started to um, run one shoe on, one shoe off, my cardigan hanging off and I ran out and up the up the ward towards the nurse's station. Mm. That's that's thirty years ago, Wendy, and your recall is extraordinary of the those tiny details, mm. which speaks to me of of obviously how shocking it is. Some people bury those experiences, obviously, but you've obviously got almost total recall. Does that does that speak to the the obvious impact it had on you at the time and and still does? I buried it for um, 25 years. I buried it not long after. And um, and when the police first rang me um, just before um, Bradley was, was arrested and asked me what happened, it came absolutely flooding back to me in great detail and it's been quite traumatic actually mm. not not quite traumatic it's been very traumatic yeah yeah and wendy i'm just curious in that time you know it was such an unexpected attack and and you were taken off guard and what was it about you that you obviously fought so hard and so quickly was it just an instinct to oh, i've just got to do something Oh, look, as soon as I realised there was nothing on the cloth, uh, the, the survival instinct completely kicked in and um, and I it, it wasn't a conscious thing. I just um, fought as hard as I possibly could. Um, um, it, it wasn't anything that, that I was thinking about. It, just, it was just an instinct mm. and I just, um, yeah, it, it sort of, as soon as I knew... I went from I went from thinking I was going to die, and I really, really was convinced that that was the end of my life for a couple fleeting few seconds, and then it went from that straight into um, when I knew there was nothing on that cloth, I knew I I had to fight, and I did fight. Yeah, yeah. and was it clear to you? Um, you you thought that you were going to die. Was it also clear to you? what his intentions were? Did you have a sense of what was going to happen? Oh, I just knew that something bad was happening. I didn't even have time to think about anything at all, about what it was at the time, but I knew it was something bad. You know when someone wants to hurt you. Yeah. You, you actually know when someone really wants to hurt you. Yeah. Mm. And this was a in a... A place that was a place of care, Wendy, as well. So it, it should be one of the most safest places in society. Uh, in the mm. middle of a hospital, in the middle of the day, do just just doing your work. I mean, the 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 collision of those two worlds must have been must have been hard to get your head around as well. Yeah, it was. I, I was in um, shock, and and 
I can remember the attack very clearly, but the things that happened immediately after I have, um, um, I, I was in total shock and I have um, only flashes of, of memory about what happened in the ensuing um, hours mm. after the attack. Can can you talk us through what you, you do recall of that time? I mean, we did hear from some people during the t- trial, like Rick Marshall, who um, was the security guard, who, who I think came to your assistance. Can you talk to us about those moments just after, those, those next couple of hours? I have no memory of um, Rick Marshall coming. I have no memory of that. I have a very, very vague memory of a police officer, a police officers attending, but I do not remember speaking to them at all. I have a memory of um, the um, the nurses in the nurses station making me cups of tea, and um, and putting brandy. I remember them. They said it's for the shock. I remember. I remember them. Yeah, nurses are good at that. Yes. Um, I, I remember that. Um, and I have a very vague memory. They they called my husband to come and pick me up because I couldn't drive home. And I have a vague memory of him arriving. I don't remember going home and I certainly don't remember the evening. I have no idea if we celebrated my daughter's birthday or not. Oh, gosh. And mm. were you offered um, counselling at the time or anything like that? No, no. Um I I was off work for a couple of days, and um, and I went to um, I saw a doctor because I thought I might have whiplash. I had a very sore neck, and um, I saw a local doctor, and he noted that I had um, bruising and contusions on my neck, and because I thought they might I might have to have um, um, some record of that for workers' compensation or something. But I, I was still in a lot of shock. So I, um, again, the memories are, um, are, are not really, really um, clear of that time. Mm. I mean, Wendy, just listening to this now, I mean, it actually beggars belief at how this happened and how what happened following the attack on you. Do you recall your conversations with police and trying to convey to them how serious this assault was? No. The only time that I remember, um, I'd say I had that vague memory of the police arriving and I have no other, I kept expecting the police to come and speak to me in um, in more detail, but nobody did. And, um, and there's actually no... Um, as far as I'm aware, there is no signed statement from me from that time. The first time that I ever talked in any um, depth to anybody about the attack was when um, the WA police rang me just before Bradley Edwards was arrested for the Claremont serial killings. Gosh. So after the attack, though, you did receive a visit from some people from Telstra. I went. I didn't. We didn't. I didn't receive a visit. I went to a meeting. There was a meeting, and I that was in in 
It was in the days that followed. I can't remember exactly. I remember my husband came with me and um, and I I think it was in a local police, in a police, I think it was in Swanbourne Police Station. It was somewhere along Stirling Highway. It could have even been a Telstra office, but it was a meeting in which there was a who somebody who I understood to be a representative from Telstra who apologised for the attack and um, said that um, Bradley Edwards was um, a, a good employee, that he um, was very sorry for what he'd done, that he um, was um, un undergoing some relationship problems and, um, and that he'd just snapped and um, that he'd never done anything like that before. And um, and I was just. Um, I mean, what, and, what did you oh, make of this? This is unbelievable. Well, well, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, and I tried to explain that I was traumatized, and I, and and hurt, and that I, um, I I didn't think that it was a normal behaviour. I didn't think. It was normal behaviour for um, somebody to um, attack a complete stranger um, just um, because they're having relationship problems. And I, I can remember feeling, um, I can remember feeling unheard. Mm. I can remember feeling um, um, that that. He thought I was um, just making a bit of a fuss, <laughs> and um, and I felt um, um, quite um, humiliated. I guess I felt humiliated. Yeah. yeah, and that was compounded, Wendy, when a few days later you found out what Mr. Edwards is actually being charged with um, by the by the police, um, which was and and even the wording. Um, it, smacks of um, not taking this seriously because he he was eventually charged with a, a common assault. Yeah, when I found out that he was charged with common assault, I was um, just blown away because, you know, I my husband and I both thought that he would be charged with at least aggravated assault or possibly attempted deprivation of liberty. And um, and when I heard that, um, I just lost it. I, I um, became very upset. I I can remember actually um, at the time that I heard it. That's when I. That was the first time I'd been. I think I'd been in in still in shock up to hearing that. And um, and when I heard that, I just became virtually um, you know hysterical and um you know and i i said look nobody seems to understand said to my husband nobody seems to understand um i could have been um raped i could have been killed that's when i think the reality of what had happened um really overtook me but i also felt completely um powerless and i um i think of a feeling of um yeah powerlessness crept in and um, and I went back to work and um, and I um, you know there was a lot of talk at work about 
installing alarms and, um, you know, making sure that um, people were safe. But um, the job that I loved had become, the place had become somewhere that I didn't feel safe in. And um, two weeks after I um, got back, I handed my notice in. Which is a, a tragedy on its own because you've already said how much you loved that job, how much you felt the hospital mm. and the mm. health system had invested in you personally with your extra training and uh, mm. uh, you, did you feel guilty mm. in, in a sense for mm. for that yeah i felt quite guilty that the hospital had done that mm. um and i actually um <laughs> i actually applied for a job that i had um only a, a month or so a few weeks before declined an invitation to apply for because I was so happy in my work. Luckily, they um, hadn't recruited anybody and um, and I moved out of the hospital. Yeah, I moved out. And I, and I, I got on with my life. I buried everything. Oh, gosh. Probably was a self-preservation technique in itself, was it, Wendy? Because you just wanted to – you didn't want any more impact of what had happened to or, or try That's right. to avoid any – more impact yeah. than it actually had. Yes. Yeah, I reckon that would be fair to say that. Yes. Yep. And, and, and Wendy, for, for us listening now, I mean, the sense of outrage and injustice that you were forced to leave the job that you loved and meanwhile, Edwards gets to keep his. I mean, we discussed this in the podcast because it's just gobsmacking. Mm. I was um, furious. I think um, when I learned of his arrest, one of the the biggest emotions that came up for for me, you know, all the trauma returned, but one of the biggest emotions that came up for me was anger. Mm. And I think that's part of the reason that I've spoken out Mm. um, and wanted to speak out because at the time I was really, really angry. I never understood why he only received... um, such a minor um, charge. I, um, you know, the police said that they didn't have enough evidence and, um, and I, I couldn't understand that at the time. And then there have been things that have come up in the trial that have um, made me even more angry, if you like, because, um, you know, to learn that the, um, the security guard, um, to learn that, I mean, he's, he said that Bradley Woods admitted to trying to drag me into the toilet. That's right. And, um, and I didn't know that. And I didn't know that. I also didn't know that, um, obviously, that Bradley Woods had been referred for um, a sexual offenders program. Yeah. Um, so all of those things um, have raised even more questions in my mind than I had after the attack happened. And um, and that's basically, I guess, the reason that I've spoken out. Wendy, mm. do you have any anger towards Telstra that one of their employees on the job could do this to you, yet, you know, we hear in the trial it, that they can't even find any any evidence of it on his work record? Do you have any anger towards the company? Oh, I feel very angry, very angry, and um, and I'm astonished. I'm absolutely astonished. 
I think gobsmacked mm. would be probably the best word that I could use to describe how I feel. I, I, I can't believe it. Um, it caused so much trauma to me and caused me to lose my job, leave my job, and, um, you know, and, you know, caused me a lot of, um, you know, anxiety. And then, you know, the resurgence of the trauma. <laughs> has been even more difficult in some ways than when it happened at the time because it's in, you know, the context of, um, you know, brutal rape and serial killing. Mm. And um, it was um, it was a very brief and very small moment in the trial, but when the, um, the Telstra um, staff member who was called to give evidence, um, Tony Vermeero was his name, um, and he went through um, everything that he could find. So there were records from Mr. Edwards's um, work history. So we knew exactly when he got his promotions. There were records of his pay slips. There were records of his leave. There was records of his annual leave. There were records of which car he drove at what time and what access to those cars he had. Um, there was records of the days off that he had, his sick leave. But when he was asked right at the end of his evidence, is there any record of this incident in 1990, there was nothing. Not one letter, not one um, re record of, uh, of certainly of this meeting that Wendy um, remembers, but anything else in terms of a disciplinary process or anything. So it is a, a blank page or several blank pages in Telstra's work history, which begs questions as to where those rec if those records ever existed um, and if they did where they were now we've attempted to talk to Telstra or ask them for comment um, any comment um, in the last uh, since Thursday um, and they've stoutly and staunchly said that they won't be making any comment which personally I think is an indictment on them um, they might not like me saying that but I'm not I'm not that bothered because um, there are still questions to be answered as to what yes. happened there um, and there were other things that were sort of lacking um, we learned later that the WA police when this Telstra link was first made in 96, 98 there were also sort of faxes sent about who had certain cars at certain times and um, and Mr Edwards' name uh, did not appear on those formal requests either. Now, they said that was in error, but I mean, you know, I'm sure errors do happen, but there's just a trail of breadcrumbs that should have been there that weren't. And for whatever reason, um, they still weren't. And I think personally that Telstra should should be brave enough to, to say, well, um, we, we either we don't know what happened or those records have disappeared. We should have done more at the time. But as it stands today, they, they haven't made any comment at all. Very, very disappointing. Isn't it? W Wendy, I mean, at the very least, do you feel that you would deserve an apology? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, I do. I mean, there must have... Surely there must have been probation reports sent to his employer, I would have thought. Absolutely. There must have been something, yes, yes. And I think this is something that, um, you know, people are very upset about. You know, you know that we do get a lot of emails to the podcast and this is coming up repeatedly. People want to know what happened there at Telstra that the protocols 
weren't followed as they should have been. Yes, I know I would like to know that as well. Yeah. Well, Tim was telling us um, yesterday about the moment that you did get that phone call from police and, um, I mean, this in itself is, you know, uh, extraordinary as well because, as you mentioned, you had buried, absolutely buried this experience. Can you talk us through that day? Uh, I, I guess there were there were two two phone calls. There was a phone call a couple of days before he was arrested, and um, from a detective who um, just completely out of the blue, who um, said that they were investigating some old cases, and um, and did I remember the attack that happened to me in 1990? And um, when I was working at Hollywood Hospital, and um, and I st- I said yes I do. I mean you've got to remember I hadn't thought of this for twenty five years, mm. but the the words came tumbling out. I and as I spoke to her, um, it the the what happened was quite clear in my mind, um, and um, she took. She was taking notes. She took notes and um, she said, look, she said, um, she said, um, I'll, I'll probably be back in touch and basically um, please don't speak to anybody else about this. Um, and, um, and then she, <laughs> the conversation finished and, um, and I got off the phone and I, you know, I said to my husband, I said, I've just had this, you know, strange phone call from the WA police and um, and it's about um, they, they're investigating some old crimes and they wanted to talk to me about um, what happened to me at Hollywood Hospital all those years ago. So we were talking about what happened and as I was talking about it, things were coming back to me, but we really didn't know, you know, I thought maybe... Um, you know, maybe that the person that had attacked me had attacked somebody else or something and they'd linked him to it, like, you know, later. Anyway, a couple of days after that, I received another phone call and said that, um, you know, we needed to, I just needed to prepare you and just to let you know that the person that attacked you at Hollywood Hospital has just been arrested for um, um, the Claremont serial killings, and um, and there's going to be a news broadcast, and um, and I just went into shock again. I just went into shock again, and I was actually just um, um, coming out of um, my a Pilates class <laughs> when I got that call, and I drove home and. Um, and I don't, didn't even remember the drive home. It was a bit like the um, drive home after the attack. And um, and I um, I got home and we put the television on and um, Carlo Callahan was there um, talking about what had happened. And um, and that was a couple of days before Christmas. And it was just um, it. It was surreal. It was surreal. I couldn't get my head around it. And, um, you know, there was so much um, trauma and 
so many flashbacks and all sorts of things happened. It was a very, very difficult few weeks, actually. And you lived in Perth, obviously, Wendy, during the 90s. You had teenage daughters. Um, well, well, I was in... I was in Perth until um, late '96, mm-hmm. and um, but I was going through a lot of trauma myself in '96. My marriage broke up, mm-hmm. and um, um, but I do remember. Um, I do remember. You know, my girls were all out and about, and I do remember being quite concerned about them when they went out. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, because of the news that there was a killer around. But by the end of 96, I'd actually um, moved up to Kalgoorlie mm-hmm. and um, and then, um, you know, didn't really live back in Perth again for a number of years. Um, so I was quite removed from what was actually um, going on in Perth at that time. Yeah, quite removed. And... I guess in the in in the far recesses of your mind, um, you were a bit removed from the Claremont situation. But when you would hear about um, the girls missing from Claremont and what have you, did it did it trigger anything in your mind that you would think it would make you think of the time where you were assaulted? Never, no, never. It was completely. I had completely buried it. Wow, totally to be able to um, get on with things. And um, and as I said, you know, by the time, at the end of 96, we moved and, um, and I was living up in Kalgoorlie for the next three years and then moved over to Tasmania. Um, so I came back to WA um, a few years after that and I was back there for about for a couple of years, but then we moved to Tasmania permanently about um, fifteen years ago. Yep. And so when those two worlds collided just a few days before Christmas, Wendy, you've just alluded to it. Then I mean that must have been, I suppose, forced you to relive what had happened back in nineteen ninety. But then there was the the extra shock or the additional shock of knowing that that this man that had attacked you may have mm. may have gone on to do much worse to a lot more people. Yes, yeah. Yeah, the resurgence of the trauma um, has been really quite difficult to deal with because, as I said before, you know, it's in the context of, um, you know, um, murder and yeah. brutal rape mm. and... Um, and so, you know, the mind <laughs> takes over a little bit. So it has been difficult to deal with. But I, um, the WA police put me in touch with um, the Victims of Crime Counselor mm-hmm. um, in Hobart. And um, and that was, um, I saw her a few times and that was very helpful at the beginning of the process. And, um, and I've got a lot of support from family and friends. And um, so... The trial process for me has been um, has been you know tiring, exhausting, but obviously um, you know I have to keep things in perspective, yes. and nothing as exhausting as it would have been you know for the families of those murdered girls, and um, 
you know, the way that they've managed has been um, an inspiration to me, I have to say, yes. Yeah. And when you, uh, during the course of the trial, were you able to follow closely the details of Edward's crimes or was it too close to home? Were there certain things that you just didn't want to know about because of oh, mm, the closeness? Mm, mm. I, I didn't want to know about um, the actual um, manner of the girls' deaths and the burial sites. The The details about those things I um, I avoided um, um, following media reports and and the good news for me living in Tasmania was I was able to pick and choose the parts <laughs> that I did um, um, follow yes yeah. yeah after the police had obviously told you what was going on um, Wendy you then had to I suppose broach the subject with the, the, the ones closest to you um, and that was obviously all all happening around around Christmas, you know, I mean, how did you actually go about mm. um, explaining to them this, this, you know, hugely well, shocking I, moment? I, well, I carried it with me until Christmas Day and, um, and then I couldn't um, keep it inside me any longer and I just blurted it out, really. And, um, and my family were astounded, but my um, daughter's, um, they, um, you know, they they were shocked as well because they had obviously nothing like mine, but they had a memory. They had memories of um, when the attack happened to me and how distressed I was mm. and how angry I was. Mm. They had memories of that, but they were all shocked. You know, they, I spoke to family and um, and my my brother, and because I had buried what happened. Um, in order to get on with my life, um, a, a lot of my friends and my family, this was the first that they'd actually heard of it. Mm. And um, they were just um, completely shocked, completely shocked. I'm actually a person that doesn't make a big fuss about things. Mm. I keep things um, 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 pretty um, quiet. And um, and so... Um, I think that's um, partly, um, you know, uh, after it all happened, after everything happened, I think um, partly why um, my um, – I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell any family. I didn't tell um, – only the only people that knew really what, what happened were um, um, the colleagues at work, my husband, my close family, and the colleagues – that worked at the hospital yeah. and um, I didn't talk to anybody else about it at all. It was, um, you know, I didn't like to make too much of a fuss. Oh, mm. Gosh. Mm. And Wendy, how, how are your family all feeling about things now? I mean, are they angry for you? Um, I think they would like to, um, I think they would like me to be able to let it go now. Right. That's what I think. Yeah, I think they'd like me. That, of course, they're they're angry. They're they're um, they um, they can see the impact that um, it had on me. They understand the impact that it had on me at the time. I think they're um, you know, but I think they um, you know, they would just um, be 
happy for me if I'm able to let it go. And um, and I think telling my story has actually helped to do that. Yeah. And you showed incredible courage coming to the trial and having to face Edwards in court after all those years. What was that like for you? Um, it was... Um, it was... I was very apprehensive. It was... Um, it was... It was. I've never had to um, be in that situation before, and I hope I'll never have to be in that situation again. It was. Um, it, it was. It was. It was scary. It was. Um, I mean, I was. I was well supported. I have to say again by the WA police and by, um, you know, by the DPP. I was very well supported, but it was a big thing to do to be on public display and it was excruciating to um to see um you know um Dennis Glennon you know to see um you know the family members it was very hard to um to actually go into court and to face him and to tell my story it was very hard yeah to do it so publicly yeah, and what people might not realise is that it's not just a flight over and tell your story. There's so much build-up and preparation. So um, it, it wasn't just one trip to, to Perth, was it, Wendy? You had to come over and meet Carmel. Uh, there's a proofing process, so they go through it. So, you know, people who maybe see witnesses just rock up at the dock and tell their story and go, they think, oh, well, you know. They've done their bit, but there's there's so much preparation and anxiety and and and, and you know disquiet that 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 has to be. You're not just telling your story once, are you, Wendy? You have to tell it over and over and over again to get ready to That's tell right. it in public. That's right. It, it's been an it has been an exhausting um, nearly four years, and you know, as I said before, in some ways I'm lucky that I've been in Tasmania, but in other ways. Um, my life has been continually interrupted um, with contact, you know, from the police in terms I had, um, um, you know, two detectives came over and um, took an in-depth statement, spent two days here in Tasmania and, um, um, you know, in preparation for the trial. And then, as you said, there were meetings when I went to Perth. Um, I've got family in Perth. And, um, you know, every time I visited, I tried to coordinate meetings, you know, with the ODPP as well. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's not been a simple process. It's been um, a long process and it's been a stressful process. So um, I'm, I'm glad that it's, um, I'm glad that it's just about at an end. Yes. And Wendy, you should feel so proud of the part that, you played in this process because uh, Tim would come in to us and say, you know, you were so impressive and so composed as a witness and, you know, what you've done is incredible in helping bring justice to these families as well. Thank you, Nat. That's actually um, really good to hear that. Really good to hear that. Just a little bit of behind-the-scenes info. 
uh, with the suppressed witnesses at court, the police were very, and, and Wendy at the time was a suppressed witness, so her name was suppressed during the trial to protect her identity and, and protect the whole process. So the police, to um, facilitate the camera people and um, photographers outside court, they started giving us headless photos. So what they do is they take a photo of what the suppressed witness was wearing on the day from their neck down and they would show us this photo to note so we as the media would know what that person was wearing so we wouldn't inadvertently or overtly take a picture of them and then publish it by mistake. And so uh, I, I, I think I'm right in saying, Wendy, that um, you were very, very smartly dressed on the day. I remember <laughs> looking at the outfit and, and thinking, <laughs> I'm not going to forget that outfit ever, I don't think. But that was it's just one of those little weird things that has to happen. To, to And we've talked about it loads of times on the podcast, the million moving parts that go on. Um, and, and kudos to the, to the WA police for thinking of doing that. I've never seen that done before. Yes. Um, and yeah. that's, the, that's the level. And, you know, Wendy's talked about the police eventually finally helping her through this process when back in 1990 they maybe should have helped a little bit more um and so as i say and that, and that was done for a, a few su- suppressed witnesses but it's just one of those little things that you would oh. never think would happen in your life that a, that a that a photo of you headless <laughs> would be handed out to numerous media outside court so they wouldn't take a photo of you it's yeah it's a, it's a strange thing but it's it's one of the one of the many many strange things that's happened in the last year or so that's right i, I remember when um it was uh, katie the detective and i remember when she um took the photo and um it was it was quite weird. She said, "Can I take a photo of you without your head?" <laughs> and um, just before I was due to appear in the court, and um, and she showed me the photo. Yes, so that you've seen, and um, and I didn't know. I was getting all geared up to go to court, and I didn't know whether to laugh or cry when I saw it. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and well, I've mentioned it, Wendy. You've chosen to 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 speak out now, and you've done you've done a few interviews um, over the last uh, few days. Um, but you wanted to 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 let the public know that you, you this is not about money or or notoriety no. or um, publicity f- for you. This is about you finally finally getting to tell your story in your own words, um, framed in your experience, um, rather than um, rather than someone talking for you um, as they did all those years ago. That's absolutely right. I didn't. I want to make it perfectly clear that I didn't get paid for the interview that I did for sixty minutes, and um, and my speaking out has never been about anything else than actually being able to. Um, tell what happened to me in 1990 because nobody listened to me then but they're actually um, listening now. They are now. Mm. Wendy, we're in awe of your courage and your bravery and on behalf of everybody listening to the podcast, we thank you so much for sharing your story. It's an incredibly brave thing to do. Thank you. Thank you, Nat. Bit of peace now, Wendy. Bit of peace and quiet. (laughs) Thanks, Tim. Thanks. (laughs) Yes. We'll be back tomorrow when Tim will chat to the DNA expert based in England, Dr Jonathan Whittaker. Join us then for Claremont in Conversation, The Verdict.
This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune into WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.